Hey, if you have a Bible, uh, get ready. We're going. We're going to be flipping through some things. If you're new to our church, um, we are in a series in the book of Exodus. Um, and as we start the message here, I'm going to just um, have our ushers take our offering. We're going to, um, and if you're new, you can just let this go by. This is just a way we, we worship with our finances. And so if you'd like to be a part of it, great. Um, but if you need a Bible, grab one. There's a bunch in the back. Um, we're in a series called Reveal. And this is um, something that's been building in me for a while um, I've been studying a little bit in Exodus, and I got to this passage, and as I studied a little bit deeper, I began to realize, uh, as I was reading some things, that this is the most quoted verse in the Bible, these two verses, by the Bible, and it has everything to do with who God is. And for some of us, we arrive at this place, we arrive on a Sunday morning in a, in a church setting, or maybe you grew up in a church setting, or maybe you've never been to church before and you're, um, you're here, um, and you have a concept of who God is or who God isn't, and you wrestle with that a bit. Maybe you run into tension with this version of God in your life, in your mind. Last week, we talked a little bit about possible versions of God. And, and sometimes we come across a, a version of God in us that God is somewhat like a cosmic life coach, you know, that we, we end up trying to get a version of God that really helps us in our life to get through. Um, we've talked about different versions of like cosmic Santa Claus, that if we're good or if we're bad, and it depends on, on which way the needle falls, then God's going to act on our behalf or not act on our behalf based on what we have done or haven't done morally. Maybe you've grown up with that kind of feeling in your life. But this verse, these couple verses, are really the ground zero for a theology of God. And this is God revealing himself to humanity. The story is Moses on the mountainside. Moses, we went through it in depth last week of kind of what came about in this story, but Moses has asked to see God's glory. Moses has said, show me your glory. And God said, you can't handle the truth. You cannot handle everything. And so here's what we're gonna do. And he gives them all these um, procedures and stipulations and, and, and ways to go about doing this. But when they finally get up, he finally gets up on the mountain early in the morning. God passes by Moses. And this comes from Exodus 34, verses six and seven. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now that last line's probably got some of you thinking, uh, probably got some of you wondering, and don't worry, we'll get there in a few weeks, okay? We're not gonna deal with that one today. But each week, we're taking a piece. Last week, we, last week we started with Yahweh. This, way, this, this week, we're actually starting with Yahweh. Uh, go back to verse, 
Well, there we are. Verse seven, here we are. The Lord, the Lord. We talked about Yahweh, the meaning of the name Yahweh last week, that the Lord actually is a title um, that we have used in our modern day translations. We went through all the history of that last week. It was so exciting if you were here. Just kidding. It was nerdy. And, and this week, we're actually talking about the next verse. The, the reason why God repeats his name twice is, is many of us are used to, when we're trying to make a point um, in modern day, we, we bold and italicize things. But, but in this day, the, the way to do that, to make a, an impression, was to repeat And so God says his name is Yahweh. He says, I am what I will be. And that's the meaning. And he says it twice. I am what I will be. I am what I will be. And in Hebrew, this is out of order. In in Hebrew, it actually says the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious. Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim. Elohim, remember in Genesis 1, Elohim is the, the first kind of glimpse we have as, as to who God is. And, and in Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God there is Elohim. And basically, it's a title. It's um, like doctor or lawyer. And, and one of the reasons why we're talking about this today is, is because I began to ask the question, why does God have a name? Why does God feel like there is a necessary, um, it's necessary for him to have a name? I mean, all this time from Genesis all the way till uh, the burning bush we talked about yesterday when Moses um, confronts, I mean, God confronts Moses through this burning bush and Moses says, who, who are you? Who will I tell them you are? He says, I am. And that we get into the whole bit about Yahweh. But all this time, God has just begun to reveal who he is. And he says, I am Yahweh, Yahweh, Elohim, compassionate and gracious. Why does God have to have a name? The answer to that, a short answer to that, and we're going to get into that today, is because there are other gods. And I know that's probably alarming to hear and probably something that, um, let's just be honest, that might confront a worldview that you have. It has confronted a worldview that I have, and we'll get to that here towards the end. But all through Scripture, there is talk of other gods. And that has a huge significance on what we think about God. And so we just talked to Genesis 1.1, and it, and it says that God, um, we, we learn that there's this creator God, this creator Elohim. And, and this word Elohim, and this is going to feel nerdy today. This is going to feel a little kind of a worldview chat, but... I promise you, it's so important. And many of you have actually said, Ryan, we like when we go this direction because we have questions and we're wrestling and we're trying to figure these things out. And, and so instead of doing like a, a, a three-point sermon on how to have a better life, I figured we'd just go this direction. Is that okay? Everybody cool with that? Okay. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, Elohim here is singular. Okay. It's a Hebrew word for God, singular. But there's other places that it shows up plural. 
okay? And so when it's title, when it's capitalized, it's actually in Hebrew, it's actually talking about creator God, Yahweh. And, and when it's plural, it's usually lowercase and it's talking about other lesser gods. And we learn about a whole bunch of things when we research and look back. Uh, the Babylonian Enuma Elish is this kind of myth, a creation mythology that came out of the Babylonians. And their, their creator god was Marduk. Okay, it sounds like a comic book character. Um, and, and, and then so there's just, there's so many things we've learned about the gods of the people in the time of the Israelites. Um, turn to Exodus chapter 12. This will kind of help us a little bit. Now, before we read it, get reading into this, okay, this is the 10 plagues. This is the part in the Exodus story where there's 10 plagues. And what you need to know is each one of these plagues um, that God sent on the people of Egypt was actually, uh, I guess you would say, almost like a, an in-your-face to the different gods of Egypt, Okay. It wasn't random. God's just not like, hey, frogs, you know, and, and he does this thing. Like, these are actually important, um, purposeful plagues towards certain gods. So, for instance, Amnon-Ra is the sun god of Egypt. This is like their, their um, overarching, the biggest god of Egypt. And what does uh, Moses do? Moses, with God's power, blots out the sun, it's like a stick-it-to-the-man kind of plague, right, to the Egyptian people. And uh, so in Exodus 12, 12, here's what we got. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. I will bring judgment on all the Elohim of Egypt. I am Yahweh. I mean, that's just powerful. That, that God is actually saying here, there are other gods. I am Yahweh. Okay? And, and so we'll just keep reading because um, Yahweh is at war. What we learn is Yahweh is at war with the Elohim of Egypt. God is actually against them and there's this cosmic warfare thing happening in all of the plagues. So Exodus chapter 15, it says, Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to Yahweh. I will sing to Yahweh, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver has, he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He, he is my Elohim, and I will praise him. My father's God, Elohim, I will exalt him. It's this idea that the people are actually doing a worship song after getting out of Egypt, and, and they're saying that there is this great Elohim, this creator God, Yahweh. And then it says in verse 11, if we fast forward, it says this, who among the gods, who among the Elohim is like you, Yahweh? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? So evidently, God has a worldview, and the people of Israel have a worldview, that there is Yahweh, and then there are other created gods. And what do we do with that? I mean, there's this worship song um, that, we're, that we're looking at here, and that he's king over all the gods, but he's a, in a class by himself. 
Look at the Psalms. These are interesting songs. Psalm 86.8, it says, Among the gods, there is none like you, Lord. No deeds can compare to yours. 96.4, it says, For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. Okay, one more. Let's do another Psalm. 97. All who worship images are put to shame. All those who boast in idols worship him all you gods. I mean, it's interesting, like, he's actually telling the gods to worship Yahweh. That's what this psalmist is saying. Zion hears and rejoices, and the villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments, Lord. For you, Lord, are the most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. If you're saying that hymn. You know, there's, there's hymns that we sing these songs, and, and do we believe that? Do we actually believe that there are actually other gods? Or have we been conditioned into another kind of worldview? Listen, look at this, Exodus 20. This is the Ten Commandments. Um, this is uh, God speaking these words to uh, Moses very, very soon after the Sinai experience. He says, I am God, and, and sorry, he says, and God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh Elohim who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. First command, you shall have no other Elohim before me. Second command, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down uh, to them or worship them for I am what? Yahweh Elohim. So this is two separate commands. And somewhere along the line, we collapsed both of them into one. And we thought, well, gods aren't real. I mean, idols aren't real. Um, I don't have a problem with idols. I don't have little statues at my house. Therefore, maybe gods aren't real. Maybe there's, there's idols and gods, and that's kind of the same thing. Um, but really what God is saying here is that gods are real. Idols are a shadow of the real thing. Idols cannot really do anything, but the gods actually have power. They have power. They can speak. They can do wonders. They can do healings and miraculous events. And, and the reason why we know this is if you flip back in Exodus, Moses is actually in the court of the magicians in front of Pharaoh. And Moses does all these really cool things, uh, powerful works, and they can do the powerful works too. The magicians can't. I mean, he turns his staff into a snake. They turn their staff into, the, into a snake. Uh, he, he turns the river to blood. They do the same thing. He, he does the frog trick. They do the same trick. Then he turns uh, dust into gnats, and they can't do that. So I guess that's a problem for them. They, they had to hang up with the gnats. Uh, but, but they're doing all the same things. So I think what happens is, is it takes for granted that there are other gods, and because of that, Yahweh is jealous. Yahweh is jealous. Yahweh wants them alone. Yahweh wants their worship alone. And so this is a very polytheistic culture. And all the gods were pretty cool with that as long as you gave them their due. But Yahweh is not cool with that. Yahweh is absolutely saying, there is no other God before me. 
And so this, this is just this, this biblical, we're just walking through uh, the biblical narrative. You have 1 Kings 11, this is Song of Solomon. Trust me, we're going to get to a point, everybody. 1 Kings 11, Solomon. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and the Hittites. Uh, they were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. And Solomon grew, as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. God, Yahweh, his Elohim, as the heart of David, his father, had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. And then it says, on a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable God of the Ammonites. So notice in the story that the gods are all called by name. They're all called by name. And nowhere does it say that the gods are not real. It's, uh, they're real. Ashtoreth, the Sidonians, modern-day Lebanon, Molech, modern-day Jordan, the Ammonites, Ammon, the capital of Jordan. I mean, these are, these are places. These have fixtures right now. God's in the story with real power over real geographic uh, places and ethnic groups that have actual power. That's why they worshiped them. Created gods that have actual power over Geographic regions and ethnic groups. In Deuteronomy 32, it, it talks about being given over to the gods. Daniel 10, there's this story. This is crazy story in Daniel. If you've ever read Daniel, uh, Michael, the archangel's coming to help Daniel, and he's delayed by the prince of Persia. This, this, this evil kind of this malevolent spirit in Persia is delayed by him. Um, and then it mentions actually uh, the prince of Greece. Um, these, are, these are spiritual beings. So according to scripture, let's just lay it out there. This world is populated by real spiritual beings. If we're going to take the Bible at its word as, as what God is revealing who he is, we cannot neglect the idea that there are other created spiritual beings. And if language, the language gods actually makes you nervous, I get that. Um, sometimes in our culture, people like replace that idea of gods with angels and demons, and we think that's, that's more um, the thing to do. There's two problems with that. First one is um, angels and demons in our culture come with baggage, cultural baggage, and we think that angels are like uh, blonde Swedish supermodels with 10-foot wingspans. And um, <laughs> nowhere in Scripture is an angel a woman. Um, in fact, they're probably pretty terrifying dudes. Um, 
And then the whole idea was demons characters. I mean, I just think of Will Ferrell on Saturday Night Live. You know, the Will Ferrell skit. If you haven't seen it, look it up. It's great. Um, but this language that's used here all throughout scripture is actually Elohim. It's God's. It's, it's Solomon's heart is turned away by the gods to do evil. And then this is kind of the last piece before we get into oh, just the nice New Testament. Okay, so, so we joke around around here that, uh, that sometimes we have this perception that God in the Old Testament is mean and then he gets nice in the New Testament when his, when his hippie son goes off to college and learns some, some new things, you know. That's not accurate at all. So uh, Psalms 82, Psalm 82, Psalm of Asaph, it says, God presides in the great assembly. In some, uh, uh, in some scriptural uh, you know, interpretations, it's the divine council. Now, this is a very huge thing to understand. This is, this is ancient Mesopotamia. This is uh, Greece. I mean, if you've ever seen Rise of the Titans with that, that lame movie with Liam Neeson and he plays Zeus, you guys remember that? And like, there's like hard rock music and stuff, whatever. Um, and, and they're like in the divine council and it's Zeus and all the other gods and they're looking down, what are we gonna do with earth? You know, this is this kind of idea that there's a divine council. This is very, um, this is like, understood by many in the ancient Near East. And so this is the Psalm Asaph is putting together. He says, God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. Now that word gods right there, actually ESV version and NAS uh, version actually get this wrong uh, because in those versions, it's among the rulers and it's clearly not the rulers, it's the gods. And we do that to help ourselves, trying to like, oh, I can figure that out. Like, like the, what do we do with this idea of the gods? Like God is presiding in a council of other gods? What? What is this? This is such a weird, you know? How long will you defend the unjust and, and show partiality to the wicked, defend the weak and the fatherless, uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So what are the gods doing? They're doing injustice. They're doing injustice according to Asaph. They are doing violence and abuse and oppression it says in verse five, the Elohim know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk around, they walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaking. I mean, this idea that they're wreaking havoc on the earth. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the most high, but you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. And the last line is a prayer. Listen to this prayer. Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. That word judge the earth means set it right. Set it right. And we fast forward, and I told you every week we were going to do some nerdy Hebrew stuff, okay? And then we were going to talk some stories, and then we were going to jump ahead to Jesus. So now we're jumping ahead to Jesus, okay? Let's go to Jesus, all four Gospels. Jesus is at war 
with evil. He's at war with demonic spirits. He's at war with so many things. Um, And this is one little story, and we've talked about this before, but I just want to throw us back into this. Sorry, Sorry if there's too much scripture at church. I just want to apologize to you. If you're following along in your Bible, you get extra gold stars. Here we go. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. This is the region called the Decapolis. And we've talked about this place before. This is a 10-city state, uh, a Greek state. Um, Goes all the way back into the Old Testament, the land of the seven. I won't get into all of that. But this is a very uh, pagan place full of worship of other gods. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore. Not even with a chain. That had to be a little freaky. Hey, kids, can't bind the demon-possessed guy anymore. So just stick, stay away from the, from the, uh, you know, the grave sites. Okay, Dad. Um, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Wow. Um, neighborhood watch, right? And so when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want to do with me, son of uh, Jesus, son of the most high God? Interesting. That Psalm of Asaph says, you are all sons of the most high God. And yet this spirit runs up to Jesus and says, what are you going to do with me? Son of the Most High God. In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? His name, he says, My name is Legion. He replied, For we are many. That had to be absolutely terrifying. He begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. Remember, we talked about God's being uh, kind of over a certain geographic area and ethnic groups. This is kind of, kind of where that idea comes from. A large herd of pigs was feeding on a nearby hillside. Uh, Why pigs? Because the people uh, sacrificed pigs to the god Dionysius. And so what happens here is Jesus throws these demons into a herd of pigs. um, And and he gave them permission. The impure spirits came out, went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 pigs in number, rushed down a steep bank and committed pigicide. Like just, just went for it. And what we see here is something that we don't normally see, right? Because we are Western, European, American, post-enlightenment people, and we have Wikipedia. And we don't know what to do with things like this. And there is a group of people worshiping a god, Dionysius. They use pigs in their worship. There's an evil spirit. There's all this stuff. Jesus shows up, steps off a boat, and turns their whole worship upside down, rocks their world. And he shows that he is Yahweh, Elohim. This is an answer to Asaph's prayer. See, the desire of the gods is to run the world into the ground, to do injustice, and Jesus is at war with the gods. Ephesians 10 kind of lays it out. Uh, This is Paul writing to a group of Christians in Ephesus, and it's a town full 
of worship to other gods. I mean, it is like so in your face. Everything you did, any, any economic business, business transaction you had to do, sacrifice. If you wanted to get pregnant, sacrifice. If anything you did had something to do with the gods. And, and Paul writes this, finally be strong in the Lord. And in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the, evil, the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Do you ever forget that in your life? I mean, I, I forget that all the time. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The point is, there is one creator God, there's a multiplicity of created gods, lesser gods. There goes back to the fall. There's something involved there that there wasn't just you know, flesh and butt, blood humans created that fell, but also spiritual beings. There's free will and autonomy, just like human beings have. Some are good, others are evil. And there's an invisible world all around us, all around you, that is just as real as the visible world according to scripture. Now, many of you in this room, including me, have different levels of buying that, okay? I mean, let's just be honest. Like I said before, we are, we are the product of Western European post-enlightenment thinking. And we have a hard time wrapping our head around this. We philosophize a lot, we think that um, you know evil spirits retired and went to Indonesia at some point, you know, somewhere else, you know, not America. Basically, here's what we are: we are functional materialists. That's what I would call myself. I believe in God, but really, all that matters is what I can see, touch, taste, hear. And this God's talk is, seems so, I can't, I can't put my finger on it, right? I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I think science, is, science isn't bad. I mean, and some people say, well, you can't, believe, you can't have faith and believe in science. And, and I would disagree with that. And I would also say that you cannot just have science without faith. I, I, uh, scientism is something that is different. Scientism says the only thing that we can see and we can that we can put under a microscope in a laboratory, that's, that's all that's reality. And I don't agree with that. In fact, 99% of the world throughout world history believes in more than just the visible. They would laugh at our understanding of our worldview if we were scientists. Science, scientism. So I just want to have a really quick worldview conversation, because I think this has everything to do with how you approach following Jesus. If you want Jesus to be your rabbi, if you're saying, I want to follow Jesus, I want to learn who Jesus is, I want to become like Jesus, and I want to do what Jesus does in the world, then chances are we have to have the worldview of Jesus. And the worldview of Jesus is very much that there are evil spirits in this world. There is evil happening in a different realm than we can see. So the first worldview I want to throw up on the screen is the worldview of universalism. You got that slide, Randy? Okay. Now, universalism 
This is the all roads lead up the same mountain conversation, okay? So wherever you're from, um, this is the, the idea that whether you're spiritual but not religious, which is totally Denver, um, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, animism, I mean, just on down the list that, that there, is, there are many roads up this mountain to God. Now, what you need to understand is that there, there's some history to this belief. And this sounds nice, and this sounds super polite. Um, it would make my job a whole lot easier. But it actually comes from a non-polite place. It actually comes from basically 19th century colonialism, um, Western European colonialism. And when, when we were colonizing, we meaning us Western Europeans, were colonizing the world, we were basically post-Christian uh, deists running around the world, colonizing the world, saying, um, oh, look, um, there's, there's Buddhism, there's animism, there's, there's all these different things. Um, and those, some of those things are very similar to, to the Bible. And so really, it's okay. It's like this idea of universalism. It's okay. I mean, you're just coming at it a different direction, um, which is kind of funny because... Um, the people they were conquering and colonizing didn't believe this. Okay, so if you're in Africa and you were worshiping, uh, ancestor worship in Africa, and, and someone tells you, it's all the same thing, they're like, no, it's not the same. And so there's this idea that, you know, there's similarities in all these religions and and, 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 and I'll just be honest, there, there are some teachings of Buddha that are very much like Jesus. So there's some truth there. But there's some enormous gaps, like chasmic gaps. And, and, and so whenever you see a coexist bumper sticker, just think Western European colonialism. I mean, that's basically where that comes from. And just honk at them. Um, you know, because that's kind of this idea, like, we're going to conquer you, but it's okay, you can still believe what you believe, you know, kind of an idea. Then there's monotheism. This is, um, I don't think it has the title on the screen, Randy, there it is. This, I'll just be honest with you, this has kind of been mine. This doesn't look bad though, right? I mean, there's God, there's, there's the biblical God, Right? And then there's all these false gods that aren't even real. They're not even real. I just discount them. They're just not real. Nothing there. All those millions and billions of people that have some sort of a spiritual connection to their God, it's not real. It's not. Silly Buddhists. And I grew up with this belief. And don't go talking to my parents. It's not their fault. It's, it's this, this is, um, <laughs> what'd you do? But I read, I read, don't have any other gods before me and idols are false. Therefore, there's false gods and they're not even real. That's what I, that's what I did with my brain. But what about the worldview of Jesus in the scriptures? I promise we're about to land the plane here. What if there are real gods? What if there is a way to Allah and a way to Buddha 
What if there actually is real gods? I know this is crazy stuff to think about, but you need to wrestle with it because scripture is very clear about it. And we need to know kind of where we are with this because scholars would call this creational monotheism. And, And what you see here is something totally different. You see a Yahweh creator God come down the mountain to us. Totally different. And I I recognize that some of you in this room and you're not sure where you're at on this and this might feel really offensive to you. And I don't, that's not my heart. My heart is, I wanna show you how different the God of scripture is from any other God ever created, thought up, or real or not real in the history of the human race. Yahweh, creator God, comes down the mountain. Flesh and blood in Jesus of Nazareth. We talked about that last week, who Jesus is, what his claims were. Comes down the mountain to us, comes to you and me. The scripture calls it Emmanuel, God with us. And, And this has profound implications for you. And it has profound implications for me because every other system is about you moving towards this being, this God. And our God is different. Our God comes to us. Our God plunges into humanity to die, to sacrifice himself for us that we may have a way Now, what are the implications of this? Just a few quick things. This has huge implications for how you think about the gospel or as what the writers of the scriptures called the good news. See, in Denver, most of my conversations with people when it comes to religious things, and this just happened last night. I was officiating a wedding. People found out I was a pastor too, which was hilarious because most people think I'm just like the guy that does the weddings at the wedding place, right? They're like, so you work here? I'm like, no, I'm a pastor. Yeah. And so they're like, like well, where's your church? And I'm gonna tell them about it. And like, well, I just want, I'm religious. I'm, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. I'm like, yeah. I mean, I hear that a lot. There's a lot of you out there, religious and not, you're, you're not religious because nobody wants that because that's bad, right? But you're pretty religious about where you get coffee every morning. Anyway, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. I'm like, really? And I just, it was like a passing conversation. It's like, but what, what's your spirit? Which one? Well, I mean, it, well, I don't know. I mean, you, you're the one that told me you were spiritual. Like, which one are you connected with? Like, are this, I'm not trying to be a jerk. I just want to get, I really want to know, like, which one? Like, I just, I just like, you know, like to kind of have some, some me time. I'm like, okay. <laughs> like, I don't know, maybe that's spiritual. I don't know. Um, I mean, I've had some killer cheeseburgers that felt pretty spiritual. I don't know. I'm just, Maybe that was a, just me, but, and I, I believe in God, but I, I don't believe in Jesus. I'm like, wow, like, like I've heard it the other way around. I've heard people say, well, I really like Jesus, but I don't believe in God. But I, tell me about this one, you know, this one's an interesting one because Jesus says some pretty offensive things. So if you're pro-Jesus, but not God, I'm like, whoa. Um, so it, it's this, this idea, like this has profound implications for how we think about the gospel, because I think that, 
everybody, I believe this, everybody has, everybody worships. I don't care who you are. Yeah, well, I'm an atheist. I know, but you still worship. Everybody worships, just like you breathe. It is what we're created to do. And you will find something to worship. And you will be lured by a God, just like Solomon was. And so this is this idea of God coming down the mountain, come to, to, to bring us something totally different. This is the God who's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, come down the mountain for you. That's the gospel. Second thing it does is it kind of helps us a little bit more with this whole idea of the problem of evil. And, and most of the conversations I have with people over and over again, they're like, I can't do this whole God thing because if God is right, what? All powerful and all knowing. And, and then why is there evil in the world? Because if God's all powerful, he could stop it. And if he's loving, you know, you know, you know the argument. I'm not trying to make fun of it, but it's just the, the argument. And it, and it confounds millions of people. And what we see here is, I mean, you, you, if you were to like look up in a concordance, like where does it talk about the problem of evil in scripture? And most people go to the book of Job. Problem is that Job does not talk about the problem of evil. Job talks about injustice. And more often in, in scripture, what you'll find is that evil is just assumed. It's just assumed. It's not a philosophical problem in scripture. It's, it's no longer the view in the West that there is some warfare happening, that there is, uh, you know, spirits and gods with, with, with free will um, that God can and will one day vindicate and, and judge the earth. Uh, but lost is this biblical worldview that there's one created God, lesser created gods, and some are good and some are evil. And they're all, and, and the ones that are evil are at war with creator God, uh, Yahweh. And, and we lost this answer to the problem of evil. This, let's look at one of these, uh, one of my favorite scholars on this is a guy named Greg Boyd. He says, when one possesses a vital awareness that in between God and humanity, there exists a vast society of spiritual beings who are quite like humans in possessing intelligence and free will, okay? There is simply no difficulty in recognizing, in, sorry, in reconciling the, the reality of evil with the goodness of the supreme God. It's virtually sidesteps the problem of evil. Basically what he's saying is there, is there are powers at work in this world. And for a time, they will continue to be at work. And so for us, I would just, I would, this is for me as much as it is for you, to stop questioning why and start praying against. Stop philosophizing and start fighting evil in this world. That's because if you're following Jesus, that's what Jesus does. And the final thing is a little bit about idolatry. Um, I said before that idols are not real, but the reality is there are very real spiritual attachments to things that we worship. And I know that many of you don't have little like chess pieces around your house and, and you do things a little differently because you're Western European Enlightenment people, right? I mean, that's just, that's, you know, but idolatry in scripture is giving your life away to anything besides Yahweh. 
That's what idolatry is. And so whether it be for us in the West, money, beauty, success, you can name it. At the end of John's life, John writes for years and years, some think he's 90 years old when he writes this. The last thing he pens is, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Like that's like my final thing. My, my shut the door mic drop is, <laughs> little children, keep yourselves from idols. So my question for you and for me, and, and wherever you fall and where, wherever you're following Jesus or not or trying to figure this whole thing out is, where are you at? You were created to worship. You will leave here and worship something, someone, an idea, a desire. You are human. What do you worship? Do you worship God and Jesus? Do you worship the gods? Do you worship success, money, fame? And here's how you can tell. What do you make sacrifices for? Now I know we don't carve up animals anymore, those silly people, but think about this. Animal sacrifice in the ancient Near East was basically currency over time. And you nurtured a young goat. You nurtured all these things. It's currency over time. And they would sacrifice these things for the gods or for God. And so for us, let me just say, what, what are some currency over time things in your life? Maybe there was a $75,000 car purchased. I don't know. That's kind of currency over time, wouldn't you think? Maybe, maybe there's ways in which we don't know exactly how we're worshiping, but we actually are worshiping, that there's something in us that's pulling us. And, and not all of these things are bad. I'm just saying time is worship. What do you give your time to? What do you give your money to? Let me ask you this. How do you escape? How do you escape? Maybe, it's, maybe you're a Netflixer, man, and you just... Right? We talked about this a couple weeks ago. I mean, Stranger Things, season two, fall, right? How do you escape? How do you do that? How do you, is it a glass? Is it a bottle? Is it a website? Is it a show? Is it the gym? Is it a habit? How do you do that? But maybe here's another question for you before we get to communion here. What are you scared of? What are you scared of? What is it that if you lost it, and that would be it. And I think that when we get right down to it, if we are worship people, if we are created to worship, and God says, love the Lord your God, love Yahweh Elohim with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, is he leaving anything out? I don't think he is. Every of who you are. And it's so important. It's so wonderful. It's so life-giving. Or if we go the other direction, it is life-destroying. And so this morning, I'm going to pray. Dan's going to come up and share um, just an intro to communion here as we, we come.